Well, thanks again for being here at Grace, and we want to welcome uh, Grace Point and Paulding with us this service. We're glad you're with us, and a great day as we celebrate Veterans Day. And a lot of things happened this week, and we want to pause and, and reflect on some of those things. As you know, last Sunday after church, um, for us, we, we heard about it then, was uh, the tragedy uh, down in Texas. Uh, where a, a shooter came in and, and killed 26 people uh, plus. And uh, I'd like to just pause and, and maybe just pray for that church and, uh, and also the families of the victims down in Texas. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we, Lord, we pray uh, that you would comfort uh, those down in Texas, who lost loved ones. And Father, that somehow you would help that church um, in Sutherland recover from this, and Lord, that they would rely on you uh, to do that. And Father, we pray for your peace in the hearts of those families who lost people, Lord, that you would open them and help them. Lord, and Father, we pray that we would, as a church, be everything that we need to be as we share truth, um, no matter what the opposition, and we share it with love. Lord, help us all to accomplish that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Very thankful here at Grace, uh, we have a man named Chris Shea and, and several men on what we call a safety team. And uh, they serve here every week. And their two main functions is that they are here to respond to a medical emergency. And they are also prepared to resp to, with an armed response to any other threat that we may have here at Grace. They serve week in and week out, and probably most of you don't even realize that. They're not here to be... Um, chaperones for teenagers or hall monitors in the gym. They're here for those two reasons. So you might notice them, they're in instant communication with each other. And uh, you might notice them kind of watching over the, the parking lots or being in our hallways or maybe greeting uh, a stranger who has a backpack and while warmly greeting them to our church service on Sunday morning, also checking to see what, what's in that backpack and we not only have that in place, but uh, God's given us the resources where you know, we're able to do background checks on all of our children's workers and just all that stuff. Uh, just have financial security and um, have processes. You know, I've, I've been the pastor here for, the lead pastor for 25 years or whatever. I can't write a check. I've, I've never written a check from our church. It takes three people to write a check. Just... Just stuff like that. I, I just want you to know that we're committed, first of all, to your safety, your children's safety, but also we're committed to even keeping your investments safe here at Grace. And we appreciate those men. Yeah, if you want to uh, uh, thank them publicly, I think that would be great. And we're constantly reminded, as, as we just saw in the, the hymn, 
that uh, we appreciate living in a country where there's freedom. But freedom always comes with a price. Yesterday was Veterans Day, and, uh, and what I'd like to do is I would like all of our veterans to stand and remain standing while, while I say a few words. Right now, if you're a veteran, also in our venues, Grace Point, Paulding, if you're a veteran, we'd like you to stand uh, right now and, and just hang on for a second. While you're standing, just, I just want to point out a few things. First of all, we have freedom in our country like no other country has ever had freedom. It's never free. It always comes with a cost. And we want to thank all of you because you stepped up and you were willing to pay that cost and serve our country and therefore serve us. And so what we're doing now is we're just handing out a small token of our appreciation of your service to our country and your service to us. And we want you to know that we don't ever want to take that for granted. We don't ever want to take our country for granted. We don't want to ever take our freedom for granted. And we want you to know that we thank you for our service. Now we can show them our appreciation. grown up in a, as a Navy brat uh, on different bases around our country, I can tell you that all of our veterans have a special place in our heart and a special place in the heart of our church family. Thank you very much. You can be seated. Thank you. We're in a series called Hard Sayings, and uh, and it's, it's really about the, the hard sayings of Jesus, the things that he said that really caused people then and today to maybe scratch their heads and go, wow, that, that doesn't sound like the Jesus I was taught about in Sunday school. And there's really a lot of misconceptions about Jesus. I think a lot of times people in our, in our culture, they think that Jesus was just some moral teacher that, that went around wearing white and and had these comforting, pithy sayings that gave everybody kind of a warm, fuzzy, every, a warm, fuzzy feeling everywhere he went. That, that is not the Jesus of the Bible, and that is not the Jesus of history. Because the Jesus that we read about in Scripture, he was thought-provoking, challenging, controversial. And, and like Tim said last Sunday... He was never boring. I mean, people in the first century might have described Jesus a lot of different ways. Boring would not be one of those ways. Because he was a lightning rod for criticism. And, uh, and that's the Jesus that we're talking about. We're going to look at a couple of those hard sayings today. And when we say hard sayings, because they're hard to understand, but they're also hard to swallow, hard to accept. And I want us first to turn to Luke. Chapter 12, beginning in verse 49. And this is Jesus talking, and here's what he says. 
I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. From now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father and mother against daughter and daughter against mother and mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. That's the first thing that I want to talk about. That is not a verse that we hang on our walls, right? You don't see that crocheted anywhere, right? It's kind of tough. And I know some of you think, whoa, we're just entering into, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas and the holidays. And, and I thought the whole main thing of Christmas is that Jesus came to bring peace on earth. You know, what, he's the Prince of Peace, right? We talk about that all the time. As I work through this and another hard saying, a few passages here, what I want to do is I want to explain the apparent conflict between peace and division, so, so you understand that because there really is no conflict. I want to expose a staggering claim and reveal an incredible opportunity. First, explain the apparent conflict between peace and division. Jesus bringing division, that's not the way we, we typically think about Jesus, it seems to be a contradiction because of that Christmas verse in this same book in Luke 2, 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he's pleased. That's what the angels were singing, that birth of Jesus. Of course, we know that peace that he was talking about then was not peace on earth. It was really peace on earth among with men on whom his favor rests, meaning some people will have peace with God because of the coming of Jesus. The peace is between us and God that Jesus brings if we follow him. And some people, it's easy to get that confused because just because the way, you know, Christmas is presented a lot of times and even sometimes just half a verse or whatever. Now we're taught in scripture, of course, that we both uh, seek peace with others but we also expect opposition as we teach about Jesus. That's why we value our freedom so much. You know, and, and so we can have a free exchange of ideas that we could talk about, about Christ. You know, there's many countries in the world right now where you cannot openly talk about Jesus. And that's, that's true of almost every Muslim-dominated country in the world. And then there are atheistic countries, same thing in some of those. We're saying, hey, there's a truth claim that we need to investigate. That's what we're presenting to people. There's a truth claim that Jesus made. He said he was God. And let's, let's figure that out. Let's seek the truth of that. Some people say Christianity is exclusive, closed, narrow. Christianity is the most inclusive religion in the world. Why? Because anyone, all people are invited to Christ. And, and there's no layering. There's no better or worse. As a matter of fact, one of the prerequisites to even come to Christ is to know you absolutely don't deserve what Christ offers you. Most inclusive 
religion in the world. Some say Christianity is divisive. Well, I suppose it is in the sense that all truth claims are divisive if people don't agree. All religions make truth claims. All religions are mutually exclusive. They cannot all be true. All world systems, same way, mutually exclusive. They can't all be true. What drives me nuts is when you talk to people and they say kind of the Oprah Winfrey thing, you know, they say, well, all religions are just different paths up the same mountain to discover God. That's bunk. That, that is not true. And if anybody says something like that, they don't understand any world religions and they don't understand logic because that's completely illogical. It doesn't work. They're all making truth claims and they all cannot be true. They're mutually exclusive. We need to know that. In this shooting, they talk a little bit about motives. You know, and some people are pointing out that, you know, it, it seems to be kind of a domestic dispute as part of his, maybe part of his family. But we're also pointing out, remember, don't, don't forget this as it's presented in the news. That from what I've heard so far, he's a strong atheist that was antagonistic toward Christians. And he walked in and, and tried to kill everyone in a church. You know, don't forget that. But the issue will be is uh, for most of our news media outlets in our country, seeing Bible-believing Christians as, as victims is kind of tough for them to swallow. So we'll kind of see how that plays out. The point is, Christ is telling us we should expect opposition. And I believe attacks against Christians in, in different venues, individually, will continue and increase in the future. Because the division that Jesus talked about, it's, it's personal. Because once we decide to follow Christ, it impacts the people around us. And some people will, will grow to appreciate that and maybe also become believers. And some people will be antagonistic against it. And, and there will be a division. And that will come right down into the core to our closest relationships. And it's because we look at life differently. You know, a lot of people will, will say, well, Christianity is narrow. Look, look at these uh, traditional values of, you know, marriage and uh, you know, morality and sexuality. But if you're a Christian, it's not so controversial. Because Christians say, well, there is a right and wrong and Jesus gets to decide. We don't decide that. God does. We, we just live in light of that reality, that truth, best we can. But most people don't want those kind of rules in their life brought in from, from God. They don't want God's rules imposed on them. So there's this natural inclination to, to rebel and reject, just, just like we've all done against God. And that brings us to this, to expose a staggering claim. Jesus is saying something deeper here as he explains this. And he, he says much the same thing in, in a passage a couple chapters later in in Luke chapter 14, listen to this, beginning of verse 25. Now large crowds were going along with him. See the picture? 
you know, Jesus has done some stuff and he's becoming increasingly popular. Now large crowds are following him. Now large crowds were going along with him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Another hard saying, right? Not only now is there division, but now it's you've got to hate your mother and father to be a follower. And everybody's like, whoa, this sounds completely the opposite of everything else that the Bible's teaching us. It's a surprising and powerful statement. And as we peel this away, first of all, we need to define disciple and make sure that we know that all Christians are disciples. It's not like you have Christians and then some, some other Christians who are better Christians and they're disciples. Yet the original apostles and now all of us really are disciples, which just means students, followers. If you're a Christian, you should be a follower, a disciple. If you're a real Christian, you are a follower, a disciple of Jesus. And you're not a disciple because you attend grace or that you meet with another Christian, or that you have a small group, that's not what being a disciple is. A disciple is somebody who loves, follows, and puts Jesus first. And so you read a passage like this, and it brings us to this, if you consider yourself a Christian, not everyone here does, but if you do consider yourself a Christian, it brings this sobering question, which is this. Do you love your children more than Jesus? Because if you do, you cannot be his disciple. Wow. That's what he's saying. Powerful. Now, this doesn't mean that following Jesus causes us to be harsh with our family or our relationships or our kids because we know Jesus also teaches us to be loving and self-sacrificing toward others, that we should love others and provide for our family and honor our father and mother. He says all that. He, he even taught at one time, you know, he was teaching people that, hey, do not give to the temple or to God what really you need to support your parents in need in their old age. What, what's really should be committed to them. Don't be giving to God, he says. Honoring your parents was key to his teaching. Actually, honoring your mother and father when kids are young, that's like training wheels to teach us how to honor God in our life later. And then, when, you, when I grow up to become a man... I transfer my primary allegiance to my parents, if I'm a believer, to God. And ironically, I honor them by following God the best way I can. Really ironically, a lot of times, I may most honor my parents by doing something they may not want me to do, but it's something my heavenly father wants me to do because I'm following him first. That's what God expects from us. And so how, how do we make sense of that? Well, hate in scriptures used two different ways. 
hate is used just mo- usually just the normal way that we take hate. But in the Old Testament Hebrew and New Testament, hate is also used in another way, which is a comparative way of talking. So in that sense, hate is comparative, which means to obviously love less. Or hate is loving less by comparison to something else. And that's what's happening here. See, Jesus is not saying... He's not ever saying you love your family too much as much as he's saying is the Bible's saying he's saying that we love Jesus too little. Comparatively, Christ has to be first in our life. We can't have these other things that we're living for in front of Jesus. Ironically, when we put God first in our life it helps us to truly love our parents our children more than we ever could have because we're taught by God to be self-sacrificing other oriented and loving but Jesus has to be first there's another passage where uh, Jesus brings clarification to this it's back in Matthew chapter 10 it reads like this Very similar, it says in verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And then he explains that. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me and when we hear that I don't think we understand the full impact of that statement that it would have made in the first century remember that in the first century they lived in a much more traditional culture than we live in now as now is true of other places in the world more traditional culture But in traditional cultures, family loyalty was right up there, number one priority. And he's saying, you've got to love me more. Could you imagine today if you came to church and a pastor, say I get up and I say, okay, here's the deal. You all need to love me more than anyone in your family. You know, if a pastor ever says that, get out, right? Run. That's the claim that Jesus is making because he's not a mere man. He's our creator. He's God. The sword or the division comes from making him first in our lives. And when we make him first in our lives, it will divide us from some who are in opposition to that. So as believers, we understand that division comes into our life. Now, I need to throw out a disclaimer. Because I don't want anybody walking out of here, oh yeah, division. I'm good at division. I do that all the time. No. That's not what, some, some of us, you know, by our personality, whether we're Christians or not Christians, we just go around, we like to argue and stir up trouble and cause division. And so, Jesus is not saying that, Hey, because you like because you're a Christian now, you get a, a blank check 
for just going around and stirring up any strife or division, which basically is just a result of you being a jerk. You know, no, that's not, Jesus is not giving you license for that. He's talking about the division that comes up when you're following Christ. Notice when Jesus is talking to people in opposition to him, he boldly proclaims truth, but he never closes off relationship. And there's just a lot of people that run around and, and they can't do that. When they disagree with somebody, they have to close down the relationship. Jesus doesn't really do that. He tells truth, tough truth, startling truth, shocking truth, like in these passages. But he keeps inviting people into relationship. Even when they respond badly to his truth, the invitation is still open. And another thing that I'm reminded of from this passage is that we can't use family as an excuse not to follow Jesus. You know, people will say, well, yeah, I, I'm not a follower of Jesus, but my parents weren't a follower of Jesus. And, and I know what it's like to grow up in a, in a house that's kind of that way. But on Judgment Day, that's not going to work. Jesus is not telling us, follow me if, all your, if, if your family follows me or if you're raised in a, in a Christian home. He's saying, follow me because of who I am. And that brings us to my last point. I want to reveal an incredible opportunity in what Jesus was saying here. Some of you might have thought, well, we kind of we kind of just glanced over that first part. What was that all about? Luke 12, 49. I have come to cast fire upon the earth. And how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo. And how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Well, when scripture uses fire... It's almost always either, either judgment or the Holy Spirit. And what, what he's talking about here is Jesus came to bring judgment. And, a, and it's the Holy Spirit that tests every heart to see where we stand in Christ or not. And then when he says baptism, I have this baptism to undergo. He's already gone through his physical baptism, right? He's already at the beginning of his ministry years ago at this point been baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan. And, but what we know is the word baptism, it just simply means immersion. It wasn't a religious word back then. It was just a dunk underwater word. And what he's saying is I'm going to be immersed in judgment. He's saying something's coming. Judgment's coming. And I am going to be immersed in something. And what he's going to be immersed in is God's judgment, God's wrath. He's going to go through that. That's what he's saying. And how distressed I am until it is accomplished. You see, Jesus came to experience the wrath of God in payment of our penalty for sin. Freedom's never free. For us to be free from the, the correct penalty. From our sin, my 
personal penalty and yours. A price has to be paid. And Jesus came to do that. He came the first time not to deal out justice, not to bear the sword. He came the first time to receive judgment. He didn't come with a sword the first time in his hand. He came with nails in his hands. But that's just for now. He's coming back, and our time is short. Either the days that he has given us on this earth and and with no guarantee as to another day, or all that's cut short when he comes again. And we have this incredible opportunity. Because God loves us. It's the good news, the gospel. This is what people had such a hard time understanding. That religion is not a bunch of rules that we follow in order to make ourselves right with God. Christianity is an acknowledgement that none of us have followed God's rules. None of us have kept the moral standard of the Ten Commandments. None of us has lived a righteous life without sin. Only Jesus. But for our universe to be ultimately just, sin has to be paid for. Sin has to be punished. And 2,000 years ago, God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to be born as a man, to live life perfectly with no sin of his own, to save sinners like us. And the way he did that was by bearing our punishment on the cross of Calvary. Going through what I deserve and what you deserve because of our sin. And then offering, inviting us into relationship with him. Because the only way that counts for us is if we're a Christian. The only way that counts is what a Christian is, is somebody who has responded to God's offer of forgiveness in in faith. And the way we have faith is simply by acknowledging our sin and realizing that we can't save ourselves, that no amount of good deeds erases the wickedness that we've all done, the sin that we've all done, and understanding that we need outside help, realizing who Jesus is, God in flesh, that he came to die at the hands of his own creation, us, in order to pay for our sins. And the way we get that accounted to us is by placing our faith or our trust in Jesus, acknowledging our sin, believing who Jesus is, and that what he did is sufficient to pay for all our sins. But we only do that sincerely 
when we want to be a disciple. We only do that sincerely when it's our intention to follow him in gratitude, to realize that he's the rightful king in our life, to realize he gets to say what's right and wrong, and our job is to follow. And if, if you haven't come to God on those terms, not just recognizing who he is, not just saying that you have faith, but wanting him to be Lord of your life, you're, you're missing it. These hard sayings that we talked about today, they, they bring up some tough questions. But I want to close with the first three are for Christians. And that is, have you owned Jesus over your family, your friends, your work? Have you owned Jesus? Is Jesus a priority? And if you do that, you may get some stinging criticism at work or from your family or from your friends. But it'll prove you to be a disciple. Second question, are you disobeying God in some area of your life right now? You know, are you sitting there now thinking, yeah, I'm a disciple. But you habitually, intentionally disobey God in some area of your life. You, you flex your own will over his. You know, have you rearranged your priorities like a true disciple? Do you give? Do you serve? Do you make him first? Do you live like that? Third question is, do you have conditions for following Jesus? You know, some people quit following Jesus because, oh, well, God let me down, or this didn't work out the way I thought it was, or or my marriage failed, or, or whatever, and I thought God was going to take care of all that. And if he's, he didn't fill his end of the bargain, I'm out. No. Jesus is, is beyond all that. Jesus is first in all. Jesus is not a means to an end. Jesus is the end. Jesus is everything. We can't come to Jesus saying, well, I want to follow Jesus because that will make my marriage better. I want to follow Jesus so my kids will turn out better. And, and, or I want to follow Jesus so I'll be a better parent. You Probably those things will be true, but that can't be the motivation. The motivation is I want to follow Jesus because he's the Lord of my life. And then as he becomes Lord of my life, and that starts filtering down through my life, all of a sudden, I'm more self-sacrificing, more giving, a better parent, a better spouse, and everything else. But don't get it mixed up. And remember, Jesus is not calling us to a smooth and easy life. This world has trouble, and some people say, yeah, it's... Things are out of whack and my life's spinning out of control. I need Jesus. Right, you do. But don't think coming to Jesus never promised us a smooth, easy, safe life. He's promised us a dynamic life that, that has meaning and purpose. That we can understand what's right and wrong. We, we, can, we can figure it out. And the last question is for those who don't know that you're a disciple of Jesus. And then the question is simply, are you ready to make Jesus number one in your life?
ready to make Jesus number one. Because you know that he's already died for you. He already has loved you. He's already extended the invitation. And now have you responded? Have you loved him back? With all your heart, mind, strength, soul. Have you loved him back as king of your life? Because that's what it means to be a disciple. And that's what it means to be a Christian. And if you don't know that you've ever done that, that decision is the most important decision. And I want to help you with that. But I don't want you to feel manipulated. I don't want to put words in your mouth. But I want to give you an opportunity before we close the service to respond to Jesus in faith. And the way I'd like to do that is have everyone bow their heads right now. And if you're not sure that you're a true believer the way Jesus describes believers, that you love Jesus more than anything in your life or anyone, well, then I want to lead you in a prayer. And, of course, God knows your every thought, and so you can pray to God without even verbalizing it audibly. But it's only you and God that will know if you're sincere. But maybe it's time for you to respond. He's not guaranteed you another day. We, we all expect to live for a few more years at least. God's not guaranteed any of us that we finish this day alive. And so maybe it's time for you to make this prayer your prayer. Put it in your own words. Just communicate this to God. Something like this. Father God in heaven, I, I thank you that you love me, even though I don't deserve it. And I acknowledge, I recognize that I've sinned against you and that I deserve punishment. And judging by what Jesus went through, that punishment is a lot worse than I think I deserve. But God, I thank you that you, you've loved me and you still love me. And you allowed, your, you allowed Jesus to come and take my judgment on himself to pay my penalty for sin on the cross. And right now, God, I'm putting my faith, my trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for my salvation. And God, I want you to come into my life by way of your Holy Spirit and help me to follow you. Because my desire, my intention is to make you first God, thank you for saving me. I'd like our heads to remain bowed, and, and here's what I want to do, something a little bit different. Is our heads are bowed, and that's just because I don't want to embarrass anybody or, again, don't want to manipulate anyone. But if you prayed that prayer or a prayer just like that here in the last five minutes, And as far as you know, that may be the first time that you've ever come to God on his terms, that he's the boss of your life, that you want to submit to him. We would like to know that. Again, we're, we're not going to get your name or, or have you 
move anywhere or come up here or anything like that. But if that's true of you, I'd like to raise your hand. And while your hand's up, I'd like to just pray for everyone with their hands raised. Again, our heads are bowed. But if you prayed that prayer, I'd like you to just lift your hand. Just to say, hey, Kevin, I prayed that prayer. Thank you. Just lift it up and just hold it up for a minute. Lift it up. Lift it up. Thank you. While it's up, let's let's pray together. Father, we pray for these who, who are indicating now that they have come to you, calling out to you in faith. And Father, we, we thank you that, that they're just like we have been. They're just wanting to, to turn our lives over to you and realizing that we don't deserve it. Father, we pray that they would feel your presence, that you would Give them the strength they need to follow you and, and all of us who consider ourselves believers. Give us the strength to follow you. And God, thank you for loving us first and continuing to love us in spite of our sin. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.